It's good to see everybody this morning. Open your Bibles with me to Galatians chapter 5. We'll begin reading in verse 13 and read through verse 16, a short section of Scripture that is a transition point for Paul. Begin reading with me in verse 13. For, brethren, ye have been called unto liberty. Only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. But if ye bite and devour one another, take heed that ye be not consumed one of another. This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lusts, the lust of the flesh. Before we continue to look at this, I'd like to say a quick word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Lord, thank you for this portion of Scripture. Thank you for the songs that have been sung and the prayers that have been offered. I pray, Lord, that as we study this Scripture, that you would allow us to see in it the beauty of the freedom we have in Christ. Lord, see that we have been moved from a slave to sin to now being free and a servant of the Most High. Lord, let us find peace in the Scripture read this morning, and Lord, as the Word is preached, I pray that you would give us light to understand it, that, Lord, you would lighten our minds and our hearts to understand the Word, for without you and without your Spirit, everything we do is impossible and in vain. Gracious Lord, bless us with understanding, I beg. In Christ's name, amen. Here in verse 13, Paul begins the verse in a similar way that he does as he transitions to a practical point that he is building on a prior concept when he says, for. Now, as we've learned, as we've studied this epistle, very often Paul would use these transition points to kind of show us a direction that this doctrine is pointing towards, a practical implication, what this means. You know, theology, as it were, is not just theoretical concepts, but every time we read something in the Word of God, it is going to give us an explicit springboard to understand not just in the mind, but equally in the heart and in the action. And Paul here, as he begins to transition into the final exhortation that is building on the doctrines of grace, the true, unabated, unadulterated gospel, he moves from speaking about the truth in Christ, our freedom as we have in our mother Israel, that heavenly Jerusalem, as it were, as he looks and transitions from discussing to us that we are saved solely by the righteousness of Christ, he moves into what that means. Now, when he says, for, brethren, ye have been called unto liberty, he says what we have been called to as a child of God is freedom. This is a word liberty that we understand as Americans. 
in our country, we have the type of freedom that people have never really enjoyed throughout human history. Now, I know Western civilization has its roots in Greco-Roman Empire. I know that, that if you go and read through some of the history, you can see how our republic, as it were, our constitutional republic has its roots in Greece. And we can see that freedom slowly begin to expand as it kind of builds up to our nation and its constitution. But at the same time, the type of freedom we have here in our country, the freedom to worship, the freedom of speech, the freedom that we have is unparalleled in human history. What we have in our country specifically is something that we understand as Americans. The word freedom, when we hear it, I bet you immediately will either think of a soldier that has died for your freedom. You may think of fireworks. You may think of cotton candy. You may think of red, white, and blue. It is imagery here that we've been programmed to think when we hear the word liberty. Maybe you even see the Liberty Bell. Maybe you see the Constitution. But it's a word that has power, isn't it? At least to us. It's a word that in some ways, unfortunately, has some even baggage with it that is not meant to be pulled into the context of the book of Galatians. Liberty is a very powerful word. The word freedom is powerful. And when he looks here and says, for brethren, ye have been called unto liberty, he's using this in a way, kind of a two-pronged way to show them the freedom they have. Now, one thing that he is using here is he says, you've been called unto liberty. It's going to have this idea of being called to liberty by Jesus Christ from the law. So you have here this view of being called out of the law service, which was bondage to them uh, throughout this epistle. He's reminded them that they aren't under the Old Testament law and held accountable to do those things that the Jews had to do therein. He, they're not held accountable to keep all of the ordinances that they had, but it goes past that. They were not only called into the liberty to not have to keep the law, but they've been called unto liberty in Christ from a death in sins. As we understand, he says in an earlier chapter, in chapter 3, that Christ redeemed us, in verse 13, from the curse of the law, that curse being bondage, being made a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. Not only have we been brought forth from the law service, as it were, but the reason we're able to move from this law service, from the old covenant, into the freedom we have in Christ is because of a greater deliverance that we have in Christ, and that is from hell itself and the curse that is against us. You know, we have this kind of view of Christianity nowadays to where, you know, God's not really mad at you. You know, there's no wrath against you. Have you ever looked up words in the Bible? I want to ask people that sometimes. The word propitiation has a meaning. You know, when it says that Jesus Christ in 1 John chapter 2 is the propitiation for our sins, the first two verses where he says, he writes unto us that we sin not, but if you sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he is our propitiation that word propitiation means the satisfaction of wrath. Apart from Jesus Christ, every individual that is born of Adam, that means everybody, has wrath against them, has the anger, the righteous anger of God against them. 
God's not some just grandfatherly figure. You know, I can sometimes get mad at my dad um, because, you know, I get frustrated with him because I'll be trying to discipline my kids and I'll be chastising. He's like, well, you know, they didn't really do anything wrong. You know, they're, they're fine. You know, they're being good. And, you know, I'm like, did you just see they had a torch and they were burning the dog? You know, it's like, they, they're not being good. And, you know, I, I kid, they're not really that bad. Everybody's like, your kids aren't that bad. I'm like, I know, but to the parents they are, right? You know, and I, it's funny with Rebecca's dad, we never expected him to be such a granddad. I, this past week, I dropped him off on one day at the beginning of the week as I went to do a job interview. And... I was kind of talking with him about the kids, and he said, oh, they'll be fine. You know, we spool them a little bit. And I said, I didn't notice, <laughs> right? I, I get the kids home, and I immediately look and see the kids. And, uh, you know, I said, so how was it? He said, it was great. We had four glasses of sweet tea apiece. And I'm like, oh, my gosh. You know, and that's what we think in American culture God is. That God, you know, and to a child of grace, to a child of God, thank God through Jesus Christ that we have a God that we can come boldly to, as Hebrews chapter 4 says. However, apart from the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ, who is our propitiation, we are cursed by the law of God. And apart from grace, apart from God, apart from Jesus Christ the righteous, His divine holy wrath is against us. And we should never undermine the fact that outside of Jesus Christ, outside of our Savior, divine wrath is against us. We've been saved from that. We've been saved into liberty. We have freedom from that curse through Jesus Christ. But not only do we have freedom from the law and we have freedom from that curse which is against us, but to move into another one of the Pauline epistles, Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 2, as he's describing the fact that Jesus Christ was made a little lower than the angels. He took on human flesh so that he could save us and be our great high priest. He has sanctified us. Now he is not ashamed to call us his brethren. In Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 14 and 15 reads, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, meaning he took part of flesh and blood. He took part of that Adamic body, that body of Adam, not the nature of sin, but flesh and blood. And specifically, not only a body as Adam had, but through the lineage of Abraham. He was born of the seed of Abraham. And when it says that he took partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same. He took on flesh and blood, yet without sin, that through death, through dying, he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil. And notice in verse 15, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their life subject to bondage. What is something else that we are liberated from as believers in Jesus Christ who's been called into liberty and into freedom? We have been delivered from the fear of death, from the bondage that it has a hold of us in our minds. Not only has he delivered us from death itself, 
But to a believer in Jesus Christ, he's delivered us from the fear thereof. You see, this is what the gospel does. Not only have we been called from death to life, but the gospel which calls us through the voice of the preacher. Through the voice of God, we're delivered from death to life. Through the voice of the preacher preaching the gospel, the word of God, we've been delivered from the fear of death. Knowing that whatever happens in this life, nothing can separate us from God. And when we read Romans chapter 8 and verse 28, when it says, For all things work together for them that love God, who are called according to his purpose. The beauty of that verse is that God is the final victor. He will have the final victory. Our God through all of the issues of this life, regardless of what hinders us. Praise be unto God, though we have tribulation in this world, though, as it were, two things happens to us all, taxes and death, yet praise be unto God, God has destroyed death. And we can be pulled from the fear of death through focusing on our Savior and the liberty we have therein. I kind of wish that we would have, he was to destroy taxes too, right? But <laughs> we don't have that freedom. Uh, we still pay taxes, given to Caesar that which is Caesar's, but we do have the freedom from the fear of death. This is what liberty is, freedom from something, freedom from bondage. However, Paul, as he describes the liberty we have in Christ, as he describes what we have in Jesus and what we have in grace, he's going to tell them, in verse 13, only use not liberty for an occasion of the flesh, but by love serve one another. The transition here is almost parallel, a lot like we see Israel was in the Old Testament. You know, Paul has already discussed with them not going back under the bondage they were in, but now that he says you have freedom, our freedom is for a purpose. Our freedom is has um, gravity towards it. It has some type of intrinsic nature that commands us into a certain direction. The children of Israel, when they first came out of Egypt, Exodus chapter 16, you can see they begin to murmur, don't they? And they, what are some of the things that they begin to say there in verse 3? Oh, I wish we would have just died in Egypt. You know, we're out here in this wilderness. We've been pulled out of this bondage. I, I, you know, I wish we could just go back into Egypt. And they begin to even try to find a leader that will lead them back into Egypt. Their doubting, their murmuring would soon be why, what? They were in the wilderness for 40 years because they desired to go back where they came from. And here we see the Galatians wanting to go back under the law, just like Israel wanted to go back into Egypt. You know, it's strange the type of system that people would desire to be under instead of free grace, going back under some type of bondage that they have. You know, it's better to live under that bondage that we can see and be taken care of in this slavery instead of living as Jesus, as our King, as he pulls us out of bondage. But not only is the parallel there, but when they began to go into Canaan's land, after Joshua goes in, Moses is unable to go across because of his disobedience, and then Joshua begins to lead them in, and then Joshua dies, and then they're in the land of Canaan. What is the first thing that happens? Men began to do that which was right in their own eyes. <laughs> They've been given freedom. They've been given complete freedom in Christ, in the land of Canaan, the land 
flowing with milk and honey, having hills and valleys, a fertile land that God had delivered for them as Abraham's promised seed. And yet they began, instead of serving God with their newfound freedom, they served themselves. This is something that kind of happens to everyone, even in our own culture. You see, we have the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, do we not? That's what we're given. All men are endowed by their Creator with certain inalienable rights. Life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. Notice it doesn't say happiness, it says pursuit of happiness. It doesn't guarantee you to be happy, but the pursuit of. Yet so many people don't really enjoy their life. They don't really pursue liberty. They never pursue happiness. We're given this right to have those three things, yet some people do not pursue them. Equally, as a child of God, when we've been delivered from this bondage, some people are not pursuing God, their life. They're not pursuing their liberty, and they're not pursuing happiness in the Lord, yet they are serving themselves. They are going about for an occasion of the flesh. And this is why he would say, instead of having an occasion for the flesh, and this is the typical reaction that you will get from detractors, because Paul is doing two things. He's exhorting the Galatian church while at the exact same time stopping the mouths of those who would not like the true doctrine of grace. Two things he's doing here. Two things. He's exhorting the Galatians, but he's also answering a question. Now, when you tell somebody, I believe that we're saved by grace plus nothing, that God has an innumerable host, a specific people, a definite people for whom Christ died, and of those people, Jesus Christ to whom died for them, equally the Spirit goes into their hearts divinely, sovereignly, gives them new life, not because of a prayer they've made or a confession that they have given, but every prayer they make and every confession they give is solely because God has already worked in their hearts, and it is because of God's work that they are able to have any blessing in this life. And those people are preserved even if they fall by the wayside or preserved in Christ until that final day in which they will be glorified with Him, and God will deliver them from every trial, every turmoil, in spite of everything they've done without the loss of one. They are preserved because they have been predestinated unto glorification. And the immediate response is, well, why would I do anything? That sounds like we should just go about sinning if God has done all that for us. This would be something that Paul would even address in Romans chapter 6 after he says that we are alive in Christ as our federal head and we've been given the justification of life. He then says in verse 1 of chapter 6, What shall we say then? What do we say to the fact that we are alive in Christ? What do we say to the fact that even though we were dead in Adam, we are equally alive in Christ? And you can see within the confines of chapter 5 that you didn't do anything to get in Adam. You can't wake up one morning and, you know, I, sometimes my kids will look at me and say, I just wish you weren't my daddy. Well, guess what, son? <laughs> you can't get over that one. I'm sorry. You, uh, my youngest, you've got my personality. Uh, uh, my oldest, you've got my hard-headedness. And unfortunately, y'all look a little bit like me, and I apologize for that. You can't take that away. But, you know, what did you do to get into Adam? You didn't do anything. You can't get out of Adam. But what did you do to get into Christ? Nothing. 
What can you do to get out of Christ? Nothing. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Because God abounded, even though sin abounded, grace abounded and reigned the more. And Paul's answer in Romans 6 is immediately in the strongest terms. This comes from one word in the Greek. And in the strongest terms in Greek translates into English as God forbid. In the strongest terms possible, God forbid. Forbid it. How shall we that are dead to sin, now that we have been made alive in Christ, dead to sin, how shall we live any more therein? And he begins from that in Romans to springboard into the fact that you have been baptized and now in newness of life we are instruments of Jesus Christ. But here in Galatians, he answers this in chapter 5 and verse 13 as he tells them that they've been called to liberty only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. He says, don't use your liberty of being called from the law, called from that old service. Do not use your liberty of having the curse against you disannulled by the body of Christ. Do not use that liberty you have that regardless of what happens in this life, you are secure in Christ to then turn around and then consume it unto your own lusts, the flesh. That word occasion has the connotation of almost as a military coming in and finding a peninsula to land on and having an occasion to take over another country. An occasion, having one little opening that allows for a lot. And he says, let it not enter in that little bitty place. Let it not enter in. But by love, serve one another. I want you to see the word serve before we see what it means, but by love, serve one another. That word serve, you know what that means? You know, we see it now, and unfortunately, we have so, de you know, devolved our language to where we lose some of the weight of what it means. Uh, if you want a really good dictionary to study with the Bible, the Oxford English Dictionary of Historic Principles, two volume is excellent. It's a little bit expensive. Uh, the Webster's 1828 is also wonderful. If you just want a good English dictionary to study with your Bible. But I'll tell you, this word serve doesn't have the connotation of a server that we would see at a restaurant that's there to put their hands out. How can I help you? Can I give you a refill on your water? Are you ready for your bill? That's not what we're given here, this idea of serve one another. Now, it is true that that is part of it, but it has a stronger connotation than just standing here and saying, how can I help you? You know, doing the old Chick-fil-A, why they're so blessed, my pleasure. It's, it's, got more, it's got more than that. It's deeper than that. You know what this word serve means? It means to be a slave, a bondservant. And when Paul says you've been freed from the bondage and slavery of the law, he says you're not to think that you're free to do whatever you desire and wish, but now you are to be a slave, a servant to others. Your freedom isn't antinomianism or lawlessness. Your freedom is not that you are coming forward saying, I'm free to do whatever I want. I'm freed from sin. Now I can live whatever life I want to live. No, grace enables us 
and teaches us and motivates us to serve one another. And I will tell you this, as a child of God who has been quickened by divine grace, in your heart, the freedom that you're given equally motivates you to do for others. That feeling of longing and yearning to serve and help other people, that is the motivation of grace. That is the inward motivation that God has instilled in you, that freedom you have to serve God and serve others. This isn't a freedom to serve self, but you have been freed not to serve self, but to serve God and His kingdom. You can say, well, I don't really like the idea of being a servant. Well, this sounds strange to our ears of liberty, but we're all a slave to something. Everyone is. Let's say I'm doing everything that I want to do. Well, I'm a slave to my own selfishness. Some people that are, have addictions, they may be a slave to their addiction. Somebody that's always angry, mad, they're a slave to their anger. Somebody that lives life in constant fear of the unknown and what's around the corner, they're a slave to their fear. You see my point. Everyone in this world is a slave to something, whether it is their job, whether that it is their fears, their anger, whether it is selfishness, whether it is uh, possibly even false religion. Everyone is a slave to something. No one leaves this life without serving something. And this is why Paul looks at the church at Galatia and says, you've been delivered. Don't be a slave to your own flesh, but be a servant, a slave by love. Notice, because it says by love, the motivation for our service one towards another is love. Serve, be a slave one towards another. The motivation here is not fear. You know, you can imagine somebody trying to work their way into heaven, thinking I can, if I can just do a little bit more, God will be pleased with me and he will bring me into his presence. You're working for what? You're working as a cause of fear. It would be by fear serve God. That's what it would be. But here Paul says by love. In other words, the motivation we have from grace, love, our heart overwhelmed with the love of God and equally with our love in response to his towards him serve one another. From this, I want us to notice one little interesting thing. We have a very hyperactive Christian culture in America. Very hyperactive. I mean, if you, if you want it, they will make it. You've, you know, you could have football players for Jesus, right? Uh, uh, flag football, you can, anything you want. If you want to do it in service to the Lord, that's what people think that you are going to do. And people sometimes will ask, what does your church have for me to do? I've always thought this. If I could, as James has said it, followed pure and undefiled religion, visiting the fatherless and the widows, equally controlling my own tongue and heart as it were as I'm serving God, and then trying to serve his people, you know, a church body is more than just that person that they see on Sunday morning standing up. A church body is everyone in the pew. And I love the fact that this specific church 
Sometimes y'all call each other, y'all check on each other, y'all visit each other. I love that. Y'all know what's going on in each other's lives. Y'all, y'all, y'all are kind of figuring out, you know, sometimes I, I, people call and, you know, check on other people. That is beautiful. And that is what a church body is supposed to do. But, you know, when people ask me, what does your church have for me to do? I've always wanted to respond. When you get done visiting every single widow that you know, all the fatherless that you know, when you go and feed the hungry, when you go forward and take care of the helpless, and when you're done with that, then learning to control your own tongue and focusing on your own heart, your pure and undefiled religion, when you're done with all of that, and if you have more time, I'll find something for you to do. <laughs> when, you, when you've done all of that, when you have visited every widow that you know, I'll find something else. We'll figure something else out for you to do. But the fact is, pure and undefiled religion is not necessarily what people want. People want to be busy. They want to be hyperactive. They want to be distracted because if you're distracted, then you no longer see the bondage that you may be in. But yet when we see our liberty that we have in Christ, grace motivates us to the busiest work that we will ever have, and that is the service of God to one another. Do notice that this has this connotation of servitude as even Christ himself says in Matthew chapter 11, as he thanked God in verse 25, I thank thee, o, Lord, o Father Lord of heaven and earth, because thou hast hid these things from the wise and the prudent, and hast revealed them unto babes. Verse 26 of Matthew chapter 11, even so, Father, for so it seemed good in thy sight. All things are delivered unto me. Of the Father, and no man knoweth the Son, but the Father, neither knoweth any man the Father save the Son, and he to whom ever the Son will reveal him. First, before we see what verse 28 says, do notice that God does hide truth. This is one of those verses that tells us that when somebody says that God wants everybody to know this, and he's wringing his hands hoping that you will show it to everybody, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven, because thou hast hid these things from the wise and the prudent. <laughs> God has hidden things from some individuals, has he not? But then he equally thanks them that he's revealed them unto babes. Every person that has been born of the Spirit of God is an individual who is a babe in Christ to whom has the ability to comprehend the truth of Christ. He's revealed them unto babes. And we can be as those wise and prudent when we get wise in our own eyes and things can equally be hid from us. But notice as he describes this revealing that is given unto babes in Christ, he looks and says, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. His initial call is every person that feels burdened under specifically here the religious bondage of that day, all you, and this is qualified, this is qualified, come unto me, all ye that are heavy laden. All people aren't heavy laden, are they? This is a qualifier to say the ones that he is calling unto him are those who are made sensible of their sins, those to whom have been pricked in the hearts by divine grace. You know, somebody 
uh, would say, well, he says, come unto me all, yes, but this is a lot like the old train conductor that says, all aboard. He's not saying everybody out there beside the train. He's saying everybody that has a ticket, right? <laughs> all aboard has a qualifier. All that have that ticket. When he says, come unto me, he says, all ye that labor and are heavy laden. That's the qualifier. And Christ gives rest. But notice this rest has something attached to it. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. Yoke is something that you would put on the back of an ox to where they would pull and till the garden. We had to make one one time in shop class, and we actually, as we bent the piece of wood that would go around the ox's neck, it came, unlo it came loose from what we were pulling it and broke a kid's foot. <laughs> And, you know, I, we had to make one of those yokes, and, it, it, you know, the yoke was on us, right, because it broke our foot. And um, it, 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 Bad preacher jokes, right? That's one of those things. Nobody laughs, but we have to make them. It's, it's expected. And this yoke goes around a neck to where they pull and they till. Service is a part of this rest. But notice what Christ says when he says, take my yoke, take my service, take my burden, take this upon you and learn of me. For I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden light. The yoke in which we have as we serve one another is not a hard one. Honestly, it's the most liberating thing you'll ever have. Some days I get so frustrated with life, and in general, the stress can bear down. You know, right now, y'all know that I am, have applied for multiple positions at various organizations to get hired. I have two kids full-time right now. They're always sick, and they're always hungry, you know, trying to keep up the house and just normal daily life. And as much as this frustrates me, I'm, I know you have the same issues, right? Nothing is more liberating to me in the most strenuous situations the most stressful situations than simply going out and doing God's service. Sometimes my wife will just tell me, go visit somebody. <laughs> You're stressed. And it's amazing, the work of the Lord, this easy yoke, serving one another is equally liberating. And it's meant to be. God's designed it to be. And here he says, by love, serve one another. Be a slave one towards another. And in verse 14, as he is quoting not only from the Old Testament in Leviticus, but also multiple times from which Christ would quote in the Gospels, he says, for all the law is fulfilled in one word or in one saying, even in this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. He says, all of the law is fulfilled in this. All of it. Notice it doesn't say that all of the law is done in this, or you practice the law through this. He's not saying go do the law, but two things we learn from this. One is that God's moral standard has not lessened because the Mosaic law has been done away with in that old covenant. God's moral law still stands where God still commands us to not covet something of our neighbors, to not lie, to not dishonor our father and mother. He reestablishes those on the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 through 7. But here when it says that he has fulfilled 
or the law is fulfilled in one word, what he's saying is this is the intent of the law. Before Christ comes into our hearts, we can't do it. We don't want to do it, and we actually hate it. But when Christ has taken us captive by his Holy Ghost, when the Holy Spirit comes inside of us and we are made partakers of the divine nature, when we are saved by grace through faith and that not of ourselves, we now have the ability to serve God. Something has changed inside of us, and we can now serve Him. And when we do, the original intent of the law is fulfilled. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. He says all of it is brought into this one idea. And he's not excluding the chief commandment as they've asked Jesus in the Gospels. What is the number one commandment? And he says to love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. He's not saying that this commandment is less. But what he's saying when he gives these two commandments, he's saying everything can be brought into this grouping. If you love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, all of the other commandments in the Ten Commandments that are directed towards God having no other gods before him, not using his name in vain, you won't do because you're loving him. You see, the command to love takes away all of the negative connotations or the negative commands as it were. If I love God as I should, I'm not going to do those other things. And as it pertains to the church body, if an individual is loving the, his brothers and sisters in Christ, if he is pursuing to serve them, and as Christ gave us that example in John chapter 13, bowing down before them and washing their feet, if he's doing that, all those other commandments are going to be fulfilled without even trying to. You know, I don't have to think, don't stay mad at my wife, and don't passive-aggressively do things against her if I'm loving her. Because if I'm loving her, all the things I shouldn't do are fulfilled, right? They're done. A friend of gave me a CD once of a preacher preaching on marriage. It was the most interesting thing in the world. He, a guy came up and was describing to him their marriage and began to kind of talk about how there was some anger and some frustration. and they, He said, I just don't know what to do. And the very wise preacher said, I want you to go and pray for her every day that God would forgive her and that God would equally forgive you. You know, that's so simple. That can't work, right? <laughs> that can't work. It's funny, the simple things seem to work the best most of the time. Well, he's confused by it. He goes about his business. and Later, when he saw the preacher sometime later, came back to him, and he said, have you been doing what I asked? And he said, you know, it's the most amazing thing. I've been praying for every day that God would forgive her, that he would forgive me, that God would just take over the situation. And he said, she may not be doing any better, but I'm doing tons better. When we begin to invest ourselves from a motivation of liberty in Christ and love for God into each other. When we begin to pray, you can't be mad at somebody to whom you are praying God would forgive them, right? You can't. When you approach the throne of God on somebody else's behalf and begin to pray, God, 
They don't deserve forgiveness, but neither do I. When you begin to serve them, all the other things you shouldn't be doing to your neighbor are fulfilled. So he looks and says, uh, in this, all the law is fulfilled in one word and one saying, even in this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. He gives this one principle that if we're pursuing that, everything else is done. And like I said a minute ago, when we get done with that, if we have any more time, well, then we'll find something else to do, right? That takes a lot of time. That takes a lot of effort. That takes a lot of mental anguish. That takes a lot of physical, mental, and spiritual anguish to love sinners who are unlovable sometimes. But then the opposite, the opposite that he gives. But if ye bite and devour one another, take heed that ye be not consumed one of another. The expression that he gives here, but if ye bite and devour, this is meant to give the connotation of animals who are fighting, of animals who are trying to just destroy each other, or birds of prey that are coming down and beginning to attack their prey beneath them, biting and devouring one another that he gives. He says, but if ye act as animals do, if ye begin to act as animals, he says, take heed that ye be not consumed one of another. When he says, take heed that ye be not consumed, what he's saying is that when we do bite and devour, what, we're going, what is going to happen is there is going to be destruction in the house of God. You know, I think God takes a lot of... God has a lot of long-suffering towards a lot of issues that I've seen. And I praise God for his long-suffering, his love, and his grace in my own life. You know, there are some times that if I was, if God parented like I do, he'd be a lot less patient. And that's convicting to me to think about how patient God is. He's been so long-suffering, so many besetting sins and things that I have done over and over again, yet he's been patient with me, long-suffering to me, and he has cultivated grace in my heart and holiness in my life. But one thing that I have seen that he has less patience with in the Word of God and also in experience is hatred of heart and anger and a divisive nature. I have seen churches that God has been long-suffering with that were doing things here or there that weren't right, that God long-suffered. But when a church begins to implode with anger and frustration equally, I've seen marriages. You can take this from a scale to church to marriage to workplace, wherever it may be, God is long-suffering. But when it begins to have a heart of hatred and anger, one with another, we are soon to be consumed. I've considered it like this. Anger of heart is, and being consumed of the flesh is a lot like holding something hot. You're going to get burned. It's inevitable. It's inescapable. It's something that is going to hurt us and control us. And this view here that he gives as he talks about having liberty and service, if we're not serving one another in love and the liberty we have in Christ, then what are we doing? We are going to end up being a slave to anger, to fighting, and malice. Because we're going to be a slave to one. Because everybody's a slave to something. Everybody is in some type of bondage.
but God's yoke, the yoke of Christ, the service we have in Jesus. This service is easy because he is meek, he is lowly, and in him is rest. And it doesn't just say, and it doesn't just mean it is some rest, it is the only rest. The only rest possible in this life is found in Jesus Christ. Every other worldview that exists brings forth the same fear of death outside of Jesus Christ. Every Savior and Messiah in every religion lies silent and cold in a grave and gives you nothing past this existence. Existentialism holding itself as being this some type of enlightened movement to where it's all about the now and existence, yet that fear of death ever looms. Praise be unto God, there is liberty in Him. Liberty that we have now in this life, escaping the fear of death, serving one another. He closes with this in verse 16 as he transitions once again. I love how Paul transitions to another thought over and over and over again. Paul was a preacher, right? <laughs> Transitions to the next thought. We're going to close in verse 16. He says, This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. He looks and says, The way in which that we are not in bondage to our life, because we're serving something, the way that we are not in bondage and slavery to our flesh is only through one way, and that is to walk in the Spirit of God, to which he will say in a little bit that in them, against such, in verse 23, such there is no law. He transitions into this practical implication as he will continue through the rest of the book, and he begins by reminding them that the practical implications of the gospel flow from the foot of the cross, the liberty we have in Christ, the grace we have been given in our hearts. We've been called to be slaves and servants, to bow down in front of our brothers and sisters in Christ, wash each other's feet, and to serve one another. We've been called by grace into freedom, but that freedom is not so that we can do what we want. That freedom is through love to serve one another. Let us bow. Gracious Lord, thank you for your love and your kindness. Lord, we thank you for all that you've done for us in delivering us from, Lord, the old Mosaic covenant, from delivering us from the curse and wrath that you have against all sinners apart from Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord, also from delivering our minds from the fear of death. Gracious Lord, I pray that we would walk in the liberty that you have given us, but, Lord, our walk would not be consumed with selfishness, but that our walk would be consumed with your grace. That, Lord, through the motivation of love that you have for us and that we have for you, that we would be servants one towards another. That we would overlook one another in love. Lord, that we would pursue what is best for other brothers and sisters in Christ. And, Lord, that we would pursue you through service to them. Gracious Lord, let us walk in this freedom. Let us stay in this freedom. And let us not be as the Israelites who wanted to go back into Egypt or who, when they got into the promised land, began to act 
Gracious Lord, according to their own wills. But Lord, let us in this freedom serve you. In Christ's name we pray, and amen.